If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Hebrews chapter 3. And I also want to mention while you are getting there that uh, our retreat is in two weeks. So you've got just uh, about 10 days to sign up. Usually we kind of cut the signups off a few days before the retreat, but you've got 10 or 11 days to sign up. You can sign up on the website. You can sign up at the back this morning if you've got a check. And uh, like uh, Jason mentioned earlier, there was a waiting list last year. So you may want to get on that just as soon as you are able. And we are looking forward to having you guys there. All right, Hebrews chapter three, start in verse seven. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning uh, to a difficult and sobering passage. And uh, we pray as we study your word that you would help us to understand what it says and what it means. We pray that we would set aside our own personal preconceptions, whether it be a theological system or just our emotional reactions, Father, and instead allow us through your spirit to know what your word is saying to us. Father, let us faithfully interpret your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would open up our minds to understand, Father, move in our hearts, remove the doubts and the fears that we have and allow us to believe in you and trust in you. And then, Father, empower us through your Holy Spirit to obey. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, all of you have no doubt heard of Billy Graham. Billy Graham, the great evangelist of the 20th century. It's estimated that Billy Graham, during his preaching years, once you add up radio and television and live audiences, preached to about 2.2 billion people, billion with a B, and uh, millions of people professed faith in Christ as a result of Billy Graham's ministry. Billy Graham started teaching and preaching when he was a young man in the 1940s through an organization called Youth for Christ International. And what a lot of people don't know about Billy Graham is that originally he was part of a duo. There was another man that preached alongside of him, a man named Charles Templeton. And uh, Templeton had become a believer as a young man. He had trusted in Jesus when he was 19 years old and uh, went on the evangelism circuit with Billy Graham and helped found Youth for Christ International. And the two of them, for three or four years, traveled together. It's actually said that Templeton was the stronger preacher of the two. Templeton was a better speaker and people responded more readily even than they did to Billy Graham. 
After they'd preached together for about three years, though, Templeton decided that he wanted to go get some further education. So he went to uh, Princeton Seminary and he studied there. He came out of seminary and he preached for a few more years. But then in 1957, came out publicly and made an announcement that he was uh, no longer a Christian, uh, that he no longer believed in Jesus and uh, he had become an agnostic. And uh, obviously it caused a great stir and uh, he and Billy Graham remained friends, but for the rest of his life, he just died in about 2002, for the rest of his life he continued to proclaim that he was not a Christian, that the beliefs of his youth were not what he held to anymore. Now that story always has fascinated me because I wonder what is it in the character of these two men that drove one of them to become a great evangelist and to pursue Jesus and to share the gospel for his whole life and then drove the other to abandon the faith while he was still young. And uh, as I hear the story, it obviously makes me wonder, as it probably does you, if that could happen to a guy like Charles Templeton, who's preaching the gospel, could it happen to a guy like me? Could it happen to somebody like you? As we get into Hebrews chapter 3 this week, the author of Hebrews is going to take us into a passage in which he is going to warn us that the danger of uh, what he calls apostasy or falling away from the faith, that danger is a present danger for all of us. And he warns directly against it here in the book. And this is the second major warning passage of the book. Remember, we said earlier, there are five warning passages in the book. This is the second one. And the author of Hebrews gives us a more detailed and sobering warning than he gave in the first warning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And here he is challenging us, watch out in case inside of you there is an evil, unbelieving heart that causes you to fall away, to depart from the living God. And remember, the historical context of the book of Hebrews is the author is writing to a group of men and women who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, and yet they're living in a cultural context that is hostile to the gospel. And so their temptation is to revert back to the safety of Judaism and to deny the name of Jesus Christ and go back into Judaism. And in that context, he says, don't do that. Stand firm in Jesus Christ. Because it's in Jesus Christ alone that we have our hope. And that's why so much of this book is an argument about the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the law, over Moses, over angels. And here he warns them that there are consequences for turning back and turning your back on the faith that you've professed. All right, so that is what this passage is going to talk about. And the author begins right away, verse 7, with an illustration for us. And the illustration is Israel in the wilderness. And he says, if there's one group of people in the history of God's plan that you would think would stand firm, it would be these Israelites who saw what God did when he brought them out of Egypt. And you would think that as they saw the Red Sea part, and as they saw the plagues on the Egyptians, and as they marched out of Egypt and into the wilderness, and they saw the Egyptians drown in the Red Sea, you would think if anybody would stand firm in their faith for for God, it would be this group. And yet he begins with this illustration, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
And now the biblical background of this is Psalm 95. The author is quoting from Psalm 95, which is looking back to this generation that left Egypt. And if you remember the story, they left out of Egypt and they entered into the wilderness and the Egyptians had been drowned in the sea and God had performed miracles to get them out of Egypt. And God has provided for them meat and manna in the wilderness and they come to the border of the land that God has promised. Remember, and Moses sends 12 spies into the land, two of whom were Joshua and Caleb. And the spies come back and 10 of the spies say, the land is great, the fruit is great, it's a wonderful place, but, but the people are, are tall. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. If we go in there, they're just going to squish us. So the whole congregation, except Joshua and Caleb, they stand up and they rebel against God. And they say, God's led us out here to die. We're not going to go in. Why don't we go back to Egypt? We had nice big onions out there. Let's head back over there. And so they rebel. And so Psalm 95, the psalmist looks back to that. And here in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews looks back to that and says, what did they do? Well, here's what they did. They allowed themselves to be moved in their hearts by their perceived need that they felt God couldn't meet. They felt that God was not going to be able to keep his promises to preserve them and to feed them and to take care of them, even though they'd seen what he had done. And even though they had trusted him, now they turn their backs on God. And that that fear that they have turns into anger against God, which turns into an outright rebellion because of lack of trust in God. And some of you may have seen a similar process at different times in different ways, maybe in your own heart, where you begin to fear and you doubt God's provision and that turns into a rebellion that can lead to a hard-heartedness. All of us are prone to it. When we are faced with a personal need that we sense is not going to be met, all of us can revert to anger and distrust, can't we? I'm thinking of a uh, illustration in my life, actually, a number of weeks ago, I was at a restaurant here in town and I was hungry. And I'll just be honest with you, when I'm, when I'm hungry, I don't always respond to situations in the rational, calm way that uh, I might normally respond, right? I'm confident that if I went into court and I had hurt somebody when I was hungry, I could plead temporary insanity, perhaps, all right? And some of you maybe feel that way. So we get to this restaurant and I'm hungry and uh, my wife is hungry and my kids are hungry. And they tell us, hey, it's going to be about 30 minutes before you can sit down. So we sit down and we wait and I'm getting hungrier and I'm, get, I'm trying to be patient and trying to be nice. And 30 minutes goes by, 35 minutes goes by, hits about 40 minutes. I go up and I politely, uh, trembling, but politely ask the uh, hostess, hey, it's been a while. When is our table going to come? And she says, y'all are the next big table. We had some uh, friends or family with us. So there were seven or eight of us. She says, y'all are the next big table we're going to seat. I say, okay. So I sit down and I'm waiting. And after a couple more minutes, she, she calls a table of eight people in front of us and they walk to the back and I knew they'd gotten there after us. And, uh, at this point I snapped something in me, uh, just lost it. And I stood up and I, I said, you told me that we were the next big table. You said it. You told me. And uh, even as I was saying it, I thought, this is not a good idea, right? (laughs) I'm in public. I'm I'm getting angry at this lady. I'm losing it. I'm red in the face. She's turning white. She's backing up and she's trying to explain, you know. Now, ultimately we got seated. It was okay. But what I saw happen in my heart toward that hostess is very similar to what happens to the Israelites toward God. They think God's not going to take care of us. 
They begin to allow that to fester in their hearts and it turns into anger and that anger turns into rebellion. Some of you have perhaps seen this also on an airplane sitting on the tarmac and you pull out of the gate and they say, we're number 42 for takeoff or whatever it is. And you sit there for hours. They keep that little seatbelt sign on there. You start having to go to the bathroom and you're squirming. They won't feed you. They won't give you drinks. And people get angry, don't they? People start to stand up and try to run for the bathroom. I've seen people try to shove over the stewardesses, right? Because when we are faced with a physical need or a fear, it leads to a lack of trust, which can lead to a hard-heartedness. And what the author of Hebrews says is, this is what happened to the nation of Israel. Although they had trusted in God to bring them out of Egypt, they no longer would trust him to bring them into the land he had promised. And the consequence was this. As I swore in my wrath, verse 11, they shall not enter my rest. And he elaborates on the consequence in verses 16 to 19. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? So the whole generation. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. All right, so fundamentally their sin was lack of faith in God. And it says because of that, they weren't able to enter into the rest. What was the rest? It was the promised land that God had given them. So what happened to them? They all died in the wilderness. Now this is significant to understand, lest you misunderstand the rest of what the author of Hebrews is saying in his exhortation to us. The penalty to them was they did not enter the promised land. The penalty was not that they lost their salvation. The penalty was not that they did not have eternal life. Why is this significant and how do I know? Because there's one person that also didn't enter into the promised land and didn't enter because of failure to trust in God. And yet I know he has eternal life. Who am I talking about? Moses, right? How do I know that Moses has eternal life? Well, Jesus comes, goes up on the mountain of transfiguration. Who comes down from heaven to talk to him? Moses and Elijah. So here's a perfect example of a guy who apparently at some point he had trusted in God. God has given him eternal life. And yet because of his unbelief, he doesn't enter into the promised land. And so the idea is that there are even men and women who we know we will see in eternal life. And yet they're disciplined and they're judged in an earthly sense. They don't enter into God's rest, into the promised land. All right, that's critical for us to understand as we begin to move forward into the rest of this passage and the exhortation that the author gives us is that the penalty is not that they go to hell. The penalty is that they don't go into the land God promised. They don't have full participation in the kingdom that God will bring in this land. All right, and the exhortation he gives them in verses 12 through 15 is this, watch out. For apostasy. Let me read those verses. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. All right, so his exhortation is this. Watch out because you want to make sure that there's not this evil, unbelieving heart living in you. All right, and the the word that he uses for fall away here is where we get this word apostasy. It's the Greek word, verse 12, that that falls away from the living God. 
All right, so the question then is this, simply what is apostasy? What does it mean here to fall away? The word in Greek actually means to desert or to leave the truth, to abandon the truth. Let me give you a couple of cross-references. 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from or apostatize or fall away from the faith. How? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. All right, so they turn away from the truth of God and they turn to the teachings of the demons. All right, let me give you one other. Luke chapter 8. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing, apostatize, fall away. All right, so the idea is they believe for a while and then they don't believe anymore. All right, now those two contexts we could discuss for a long time about are these people Christians? Are they not Christians? What's going on? But all I'm talking about now is the meaning of the word itself is to turn away from what you once believed, to desert, to flee, to betray. Uh, Some of you perhaps are familiar with uh, earlier this year, the saga of LeBron James. Many of you uh, have read in the papers, right? LeBron James played for the Cavaliers for however many years and then uh, went into free agency and ultimately decided to sign with the Miami Heat. Now those in Cleveland felt betrayed, deserted, right? And the owner of the Cavaliers wrote actually an open letter to his Cleveland fans. And here's some of the things he said about LeBron. He says, as you now know, our former hero who grew up in the very region that he deserted this evening is no longer a Cleveland Cavalier. This was announced with a several day narcissistic self-promotional buildup culminating with a national TV special of his decision, unlike anything ever witnessed in the history of sports and probably the history of entertainment. Clearly, this is bitterly disappointing to all of us. The good news is that the ownership team and the rest of the hardworking, loyal, and driven staff over here at your hometown Cavaliers have not betrayed you, nor never will betray you. You simply don't deserve this kind of cowardly betrayal. He goes on, the shocking act of disloyalty from our homegrown chosen one, quote, in quotes, chosen one, sends the exact opposite lesson of what we would want our children to learn and who we would want them to grow up to become. But the good news is that this heartless and callous action can only serve as the antidote to the so-called curse on Cleveland, Ohio. The self-declared former king will be taking the curse with him down south. And until he does right by Cleveland and Ohio, James and the town where he plays will unfortunately own this dreaded spell and bad karma. Just watch. Sleep well, Cleveland. Tomorrow is a new and much brighter day. All right? And it goes on. All right? What is the idea? He's saying LeBron has deserted what was once important to him. He's left something that he once held dear. This is the concept of apostasy. You say, I'm in the fold. Now I'm out of it. I walk away. And this is what he is warning his group against. Take care that you do not fall away or desert. Now the big question, of course, is this. Can Christians do this? Can a Christian apostatize, somebody who really is a believer in Jesus Christ? This was a big issue in the early church as they tried to figure out what do we do with people who under the threat of persecution deny the name of Jesus Christ? Do we welcome them back into fellowship? Do we say that they are not saved? What do we do? They had a hard time sorting this out. As I look at the passage, I see three options for how you can understand who these people are and what they've done and whether a Christian can do this. All right, the first option that I see is this, that maybe these are believers 
who desert the faith. And as a result, the consequence is they lose their salvation. All right, the argument there would be that the promised land is equivalent to eternal life, to going to heaven. And if you desert, you would lose the salvation you once had. All right, the problem with that, of course, in my view is there's so many passages, I think, in the New Testament that indicate that eternal life once granted is a gift that cannot be taken away. Romans 8, in the very context of election, says nobody can bring a charge against God's elect. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And it it mentions everything in the universe, which would include me, I would think. All right, John 10, Jesus says, I know those who are mine. The Father has given them to me. Nothing and no one can snatch them away. And the scripture seems to indicate if the gospel is a message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ and what he has done, that Jesus Christ has done the work we couldn't do. He died for all of our sins and rose again. So we could have eternal life. If it is only by what Jesus has done, then it's not something that we can lose or can be taken away. The second option would be that these are false Christians who are mixed in with the church. In other words, that the author of Hebrews is saying, some of you might not really be Christians and you might think that you are. And so you need to watch out that uh, in your midst, there might be people who would lead you astray that don't really believe. There's a few challenges with that. One is the context of the book of Hebrews. All right, read the context closely. Take care, brethren, that there be not in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. All right, he's speaking directly to these men and women that he calls brothers. Brothers in Jesus Christ. And he says, in any of you, There could be an evil, unbelieving heart. Further on down, verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance. So he makes this a conditional statement to all of them, including himself. And I think the author of Hebrews was a Christian. I think that's a fair statement, right? And so he includes himself with them. And there's no indication as you walk throughout the book of Hebrews that he seems to think he's speaking at all to an unbelieving audience, but repeatedly over and over and over again, As many, if not more times than in any other New Testament book, he calls them brethren. He talks about them as people who have tasted of the Holy Spirit and who have the heavenly gifts. So I don't think he's speaking to some group of false Christians mixed in among them either. All right, so what's our third option? I do think that he's talking here to true believers who turn their back on the faith and as a result, they forfeit eternal reward. I don't mean that they don't go to heaven, but they forfeit eternal reward that Christ would give them at the judgment seat of Christ and the right to full participation in Christ's coming kingdom. Remember the parallel of the promised land. I think the promised land here is equivalent to uh, when Jesus comes, if you look at Revelation 20, Jesus, before the eternal kingdom is established, Jesus establishes an earthly kingdom, a millennial thousand year kingdom in Israel, in Jerusalem, and those who have been faithful reign with him. And I think what the author of Hebrews is saying is that there's a very clear consequence in judgment, uh, even on Christians who would turn their back on the faith. That is that they would forfeit this right to full participation in this millennial kingdom. They would forfeit eternal reward at the judgment seat of Christ, where 2 Corinthians 5 says all Christians must stand, all of us, 2 Corinthians 5.10, and they face possible judgment even now. Notice what happened to these Israelites. They died. They lost their fellowship with God and with one another in the process. It doesn't mean they lost eternal life, but they lost that sweetness and intimacy and joy they could have from knowing communion with one another and communion with God. So I think the author of Hebrews is saying this is a real possibility for everybody. 
And there are real consequences, consequences to which we must take heed. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So the New Testament is very clear that even for believers, there are rewards that we can forfeit by our failure to be faithful to the message. And I think that's what he's talking about in verse 14, when he says we become partakers. And remember, we talked about that word uh, last week. That word partakers means full participants, full sharers, partners with Jesus Christ in the fullest sense of the word. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. So he says, watch out, lest that evil spirit be in you. And it could be in any of you. First Timothy chapter one. By rejecting this, Paul says, that is a clear conscience and a good faith. Some have made a shipwreck of their faith. And implying they had a faith, they've crashed it into the rocks, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And I think the author of Hebrews says, watch out, even you, who believe in Jesus Christ, because there are real consequences if we fail to stand. Not consequences that involve loss of eternal life. Again, salvation is only by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and my belief in that. But there are consequences. So then the question is, how does it happen? And that's in verses 12 to 13. Quickly, he says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called the day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, it's this slow drift that he talked about in chapter 2. It's not as if one day you're walking along and and you believe in Jesus Christ and you're singing praises and you're worshiping him. And then the next day you say, you know what? I'm just going to walk away. It's a slow drift. You begin to believe in your heart, perhaps that the life of sin is better than the life of pursuing Jesus. And you look around and you see your friends who seem to be having, at least right now, more fun than you are because they're engaged in all kinds of sexual immorality or the partying life or whatever it may be or they have more money, or they have better friends, or whatever it is, and you begin to believe in your heart that sin is better, and that God can't meet your needs, and so you begin to fail to trust him, and over time, your heart is hardened toward him, and then intellectual doubts begin to creep into your mind. I wonder if God is good. I wonder if Jesus is real. I wonder if the Bible is true. And your heart becomes hardened to the point where you walk away. It's a slow drift. Some of you have had the experience perhaps of trying to make your way through a room that is pitch dark uh, across the street in our main sanctuary over there. My office is near that sanctuary and sometimes I have to cross through there. It's the quickest way to get from one end of the church to the other. Except the problem is until recently, at least uh, during the day, there were no lights in there and no windows. So often you would walk in and it's completely dark in the room. And uh, I could go around, but it's quicker, right? So I want to go through, even though I know I can't see. Now, the other problem is that there are chairs that are set up in there on either side of you. And if you go to the left or to the right, you will smack your knee on one of those chairs, 
All right, now what happens is I always start my way through, and even though it's dark, I'm certain that I'm going the right way, but I start to kind of drift because I can't see where I'm going. And invariably, if there are no lights, I bang a knee or a shin on one of those chairs. The idea is I didn't start out headed the wrong way. I didn't say I'm going to walk over here and bang into a chair. I'm going to walk over here and bang into a chair. But as I walked through, I slowly began to drift, right? Because I wasn't, there wasn't any light. If I flip on a light, I can make my way through the room. And I think the idea is this process happens slowly as I stop studying the word, as I stop being in fellowship with believers, as I begin to believe that God cannot be trusted to take care of me. And it leads to rebellion. So then the question is, how can we avoid it? Verses 13 and 14. A few things. One, constantly examine your heart, like he says. Watch out. Do you find in your heart little seeds of sinfulness and mistrust that are beginning to harden into splinters of rebellion? He says, watch out. Constantly come before God Examine your heart. Remind yourself of truth, right? Flip on the light. Open the scripture and remind yourself of truth. One of the reasons we're having the I don't have enough faith to be an atheist event tomorrow and Tuesday is to remind ourselves of what is true about who God is and who Jesus is and what the Bible says. Engage in community. That's why he says, exhort one another day after day, as long as it is called today. We cannot stay faithful on our own. If you pull away from the community of believers, you will fall. Engage in community. And then finally, uh, practice gratitude. Constantly practice gratitude for all the things that God has given. So as you're in the midst of suffering, as you're in the midst of discouragement, you remind yourself through the help of God's spirit of all that he has given you in Jesus Christ. And you daily practice gratitude and thankfulness. There are times in which the scripture motivates us to walk with God through the promise of reward. There are times in which it motivates us to walk with God through the exposition of God's character. And then there are times that the scripture motivates us to walk with God through fear that there are real consequences for not obeying. There are real consequences for failing to persevere. And this is one of those times. And so the question that the author of Hebrews would ask us is, will we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and do all that is necessary to remain faithful for our whole lives? Because uh, my desire for each of us in this room is that we'll hit 80 or 90 or 100 years old if God allows us to live that long, and we will still be holding fast to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we continually examine our hearts. And I know that even this morning, there are probably some of you in here that you're already beginning to struggle and wrestle and wonder whether it's true. And the message of the book of Hebrews is, watch out. Continue to examine your heart. Continue to practice gratitude. Continue to remind yourself of the truth because the reward is worth it. And the consequences are real. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is often hard to understand and it is even harder to apply and obey. I just pray, give us wisdom and uh, give us submission to your authority in our lives. Lord, teach us what is true and remind us of what is true and protect us, as the author says, from uh, the heart of sin that leads to falling away. We want to be full participants, 
and the kingdom that you will establish through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. And we pray, be with us this week as we seek to do your will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great week.